You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'll be your host this week. My name is David Grubbs. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. With me this week is Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you, sir? I'm good, David. How are you? I'm tired, but it's that part of the semester for me. So there's that. Also with me is Nathan Gilmore, Associate Professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, where it is January or something. Uh, where are you at, Nathan? Yeah, yeah, mid-January here, uh, so we're doing all right. I smell like smoke right now because I just got back from Home Marathon, where uh, over two days, Emanuel College is reading the Odyssey around a fire. That is rad. That is was this really your rad. was this your invention, Nathan? Actually, no. It was uh, Chris Pipkin who actually recently did a uh, guest stint over at Sectarian Review, and he's a uh, one of our colleagues and and like me, a, a lover of old books. So he had this idea, and we are doing it this week. That's really really cool. Well, speaking of really cool things, what's going on around the network? Book of Nature continues there streak of recent episodes although i'm not sure how recent you can call it since it seems to have been recorded over the summer but anyway they just put an episode on volcanoes also sectarian review uh has released an episode on the sokol squared hoax uh if you're familiar with the sokol hoax from i believe 1996 it was a false journal article uh submitted to a social science journal uh, this one is a series of, I think, 20 articles, seven of which have been accepted by journals. So they're going to discuss academic hoaxing and uh, what, what is the term, the uh, grievance studies and all that kind of groovy thing. It's also worth noting that the episode after this one will be part of our Halloween crossover, our annual Halloween crossover. This This year we're talking about five Alfred Hitchcock movies, so... Uh, different people will be on different shows, and uh, you'll want to subscribe to all five of our shows. I, I, I say all five. We actually have seven or eight, if you still count uh, Pied a Schoolman, but only five of us are doing episodes. So it'll be this show, Christian Feminist Podcast, Book of Nature, City of Man, Sectarian Review. Have you all recorded yours yet? No, and in fact, we don't even have a time set i i emailed ed and jay today i'm going to be on city of man and said hey we got to get this going what are y'all going to record about rear window nice what about you nathan i was on the christian feminist podcast uh we have already recorded ours and we did the lady vanishes excellent 
Well, Todd Pedler of Book of Nature and Jordan Poss, who has shown up in, in various things, Sectarian Review and uh, City of Man's Ancient Asides, um, they collaborated with me on the 39 Steps, and that's the, that's the, uh, the CHP episode that will be airing uh, after this one for the, for the crossover. Very cool. Good times. Great oldies. The topic this week is uh, the final uh, the final panel of our triptych on uh, James Cone, the uh, uh, one of the the, the, the pioneers of um, uh, I guess you would say middle middle se- second half of the twentieth century um, black theology. Uh, James Cone's book, The God of the Oppressed. Um, we skip. We lost a week um, due to technical things, but um, uh, if if that has waned, maybe go back and give those a fresh listen. Um, but uh, this week we're finishing up the book. We're looking at uh, chapters eight through ten. And uh, and then we'll wrap out our conversation with some um, some some kind of summative summative responses or uh, interactions. Well, you're up first, Gilmore. Uh, in chapter eight, Cone takes up a philosophical problem, which is the problem of evil, but particularly the problem of suffering. So, what kind of problem does suffering pose? Uh, in Cone's Black Theology Project. Um, how does he uh, engage with Scripture and the Western theological tradition's treatment of that? And uh, what does black religion offer to his handling of that topic? Well, I'm going to start with uh, black religion and kind of work backwards through those three sources that you named, David. One thing about his treatment of the problem of evil is that he treats it as an ongoing dispute, which is something that I... Uh, certainly respect. It's something that is reflected in uh, biblical theology as an academic discipline over the last uh, several decades. And, and like I said, I mean, I, I'm realizing more and more as I read Cone and go back over Cone prepping for these episodes that uh, liberation theology is decidedly an influence on the biblical theology, you know, characterized by Walter Brueggemann uh, that I really kind of cut my teeth on in seminary. So the central uh, question when it comes to evil is, you know, how do you reconcile the capability of God with the responsibility of humanity? Uh, and how do you reconcile those two realities with the suffering uh, of those who suffer for some reason other than uh, retribution for what is obviously uh, a crime they've committed? And Cone goes through, you know, uh, a lot of Black intellectuals, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, Langston Hughes, a number of other figures, and shows that there is no uniform answer to this. Uh, some say that, you know, the question itself uh, is a way to get people away from the political and therefore not worth taking on. On the other hand, there's definitely a sense in other circles that having a sense that uh, God is concerned with justice and will bring justice to the world is an impetus for political action because uh, we are not trying to make something happen in the world that wouldn't happen otherwise. Rather, we are simply working alongside God and as, as the agents of God to bring about uh, a desire for the world that's already present 
in God and with God. So for Cone, it's not the origin of evil, uh, but God's response to evil uh, that theology mainly concerns itself with. Uh, and, you know, the results of Cone's particular take on it is that God does, in fact, have designs and desires to bring justice to the world, and therefore, quote, the oppressed are set free to struggle politically, close quote. That's on page uh, 161 in the second edition. So Cone, it's interesting, um, definitely places political struggle uh, in a certain narrative in which the oppressed, when they organize and when they resist, uh, are not somehow taking away agency from God, but they are expressing and they are manifesting and they are embodying the agents of agency of God. Uh, God cannot be defined, uh, Cone reminds us, so uh, the aims of a given political faction are never identical with the aims of God. Uh, but on the other hand, he does insist, and, and I really appreciated this, uh, that you know the biblical re revelation always continues to insist on the reality of suffering on one hand and the real love and the real power of God on the other hand. So, uh, I, I, like I said, I mean, you know, with my own uh, deconstructionist urges, uh, the fact that he sees a contradiction and he says the problem is not that one side of this contradiction has to go. The problem is we have to worship until we can live with this contradiction. Uh, that strikes me as, you know, an approach to theology that I have learned and that I have practiced over the years. Uh, so, I mean, really, like I said, although I hadn't read uh, this particular book by Cone until, you know, prepping for these episodes, and I hadn't read very much of Cone, you know, beyond his book on uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X before this, uh, I definitely recognize in this an, an approach to theology that I recognize. Um, Michael, you were, you were saying when we were uh, prepping for the episode that you really appreciated this chapter. I mean, what jumped out at you as especially helpful here? What, what I liked is the notion that in suffering, we somehow commune with Christ. It seems to me a very Russian Orthodox notion of how suffering works that that not so much that we're made more christ-like but there's actually like a mystical communion that happens when we suffer and especially i'm sure cone would say when the oppressed suffer um they are they are with christ in that suffering or christ is with them in that suffering they're with christ on the cross so i really i really liked that and what strikes me here and you know this is something that sometimes I think remains implicit in Russian novels. And I'll, I'll just go ahead and say that I get most of my knowledge of Russian orthodoxy from Dostoevsky novels <laughs> uh, is that, you know, sometimes an implicit resignation in the face of injustice tends to accompany that mystic uh, identification of the suffering with Christ. And what I appreciate about Cone uh, is that, you know, for him, for Christ to identify with suffering you have to tell the truth that the, that the those who suffer are suffering oppression when they suffer oppression, right? Right. Uh, you can't flatten out suffering and make it all identical. You have to name truthfully what kind of suffering we're dealing with here. But even then, the the suffering you get from oppression still makes you commune with Christ, even though it's our responsibility to eliminate that suffering. Right, right. So both of them are true, even though both of them can't be true at the same time. Cool. 
I I appreciated his his uses of uh, of of the combination of spirituals, poetry, and blues lyrics as as sources uh, in this in this particular chapter. Um, I, I liked that that he turned to those uh, to those kinds of voices, uh, especially when he was resourcing um, the uh, not just the the black church but black religion in general, because he includes he includes uh, black voices on suffering that are not. Um, necessarily explicitly Christian even if framed religiously um, but I, I appreciated the way that he brought those he brought those voices in that you know not every you know the only voices who get to speak on this are not the ones who you know begin their sentence with in my formulation of the problem of evil this I thought that was uh, I thought I, I, I especially appreciated um, that one thing, though, that uh, is often associated with the problem of evil and treatments of problem and evil, um, suffering is, is uh, why bad things happen to people uh, is brought up, but it is usually paired with the problem of sin, that is why people do bad things. Um, Cone is certainly including sin among the causes of suffering, and we've, and, uh, we've, uh, are right, uh, to to focus especially on on how he sees suffering coming from oppression as 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 a special and particular category of suffering, um, but he seemed to me to avoid uh, the causes of sin itself. Um, maybe 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 I'm just not reading it carefully, but why do you think that he chooses to focus on the suffering side of oppression and not necessarily the causes of the sin? that may lead to oppression michael because i think his emphasis his his heart if you will is with the oppressed i i think it makes less sense for him to talk about the root of oppression i think he's too interested in in practical conditions for the oppressed to to really work out where sin comes from the other half of that is i think he may be reticent to talk about sin because he may want to avoid saying that the oppressed are suffering because of their sin. Uh, just because he's, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to say this without sounding like I'm criticizing him, which I'm, I kind of am and I'm kind of not. I, I think because he set this up so neatly between oppressor and oppressed, he has difficulty talking about sin, which would logically belong to everyone and not just to the people who are suffering from oppression. But, I mean, the other side of that is once you start talking about how everyone's a sinner, it becomes very, very easy to say, oh, well, you know, they're suffering because of their sin. And so we don't really have to worry about it. And, and I think that is a that's a dangerous attitude and one that he's right to to keep us away from. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, there's also the, the relativizing move that often that often gets pulled like, oh, well, yeah. Yes. Yes. This. That is a sin. But. But those other. Those other people. They are. They are. They are also sinners, and we're all just sort of sinners together. Which um, is not really the truth, right? On one level, it is the truth. But on the other level, if I'm a slave owner, yeah, my slave's a sinner. But uh, <laughs> in relation to this particular situation, I'm a much bigger sinner than he is. 
Right, right. It, like like that that treatment of the topic of sin. It, it, it treats it as a, as if the the offense to the righteousness or dignity of God is the only reality that is going on with sin. Um, I think a biblical view of sin includes that as as a major, maybe even the major reality of sin. But we can't, and the Bible doesn't divorce sin from its effects um, in in humans. Um, and so, so that some sins are actually worse than others when when regarded in the context of neighbor and neighbor. Maybe yeah. maybe maybe all of them make you, you know, sort of equally falling short of the glory of God. But um, I, I'm pretty sure that my neighbor would much much prefer that I cheat on my taxes than that I burn his house down. The IRS, on the other hand. <laughs> are they my neighbor i'm not sure if only there was some sort of parable that would tell us who our neighbor is yeah <laughs> somebody needs to get on that yeah i think michael i mean hit the target there i mean i you know i would add to that just that you know for cone again you know we're talking about a very prophetic emphasis in his theology so, I mean, if you look at, you know, the books of Amos and Hosea, just to pick two that I've read recently, um, you get a lot more talk about the sins of the wealthy and the powerful in those books and a lot less about, you know, well, the people that are oppressing are sinners too, so let's not worry too much. And even if you, you know, lop off the let's not worry too much, just the rhetorical emphasis in the prophets tends to be on the sins of the oppressor rather than the sins of the oppressed, right? I mean, to the point that, you know, some people who do scholarship on the prophets especially, but parts of the Psalms as well, I mean, talk about the poor and the righteous as functionally synonymous in a lot of those passages. Right. Um, though, I, I'm, I'm, there are a few exceptions. Um, I'm... Uh, team teaching a class uh, in uh, Bible study on Sundays um, through Isaiah and uh, in sort of reviewing Isaiah I, I encountered uh, a passage that stuck out to me precisely because of um, our, our, our sort of sustained engagement with Cone and in particularly his reading of the prophets um, but Isaiah 9 is uh, an oracle of judgment on uh, on God, on God's people specifically, aimed at them, um, but God says the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does He have pity on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evil doer, and every mouth is speaking foolishness. And in spite of this, His anger does not turn away, and His hand is still outstretched. Um, uh, if if but if if you take that verse in the context of the 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 association of the powerless with the righteous that you're pointing out, Nathan, I, I, I guess that makes this this oracle of judgment that much more harrowing. Um, that that even those within within the society who are so often seen as the righteous that even that even they the the oracle says are also godless. Right, and and that's where I make a move that probably a lot of the most ardent readers of 
Cone are not going to like, but I mean, I think that he does his best work in conversation with other theologies. Um, I think that his strong and unrelenting emphasis on the big liberation narrative that's undeniably there in the Bible does its best work when that is one voice in conversation with, and sometimes in tension with, and sometimes throwing punches with other voices in theology. So Nathan just stole the thing I was going to say for the last question. So just go ahead and skip me. Oh, I am so sorry. I am so sorry, Michael. (laughs) No, we should return to it though. We should return to it in, in here and hear your angle, even if it's a, even if it's a similar approach. Um, Because I I think that's something that that absolutely needs to be worked at. Um, He has a powerful project that he's developing here, but um, the periodic claim that that's the only that it seems to be the only project worth doing is 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 something that we need to bring up. Um, Before presenting his his own theological grounding for ethics. Cone tells a story about church history and its influence on Christian ethical thinking, uh, teaching. Um, and this story has Constantine in it. So, Nathan, um, what work is this historical construction doing in his argument? And how does it measure up with other blame Constantine narratives that you might be familiar with? So first, I'm going to recap uh, the blame Constantine narrative that uh, I probably have associated myself with publicly, uh, and that is, you know, the Hauerwasian notion that when Christianity becomes a legalized religion uh, with the reign of Constantine, and then the official religion uh, with Theodosius II, uh, what you get is an unholy marriage of sorts between coercive power uh, and the non-coercive invitational gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, that is, you know, the broad outline of uh, like I said, Stan Hauerwas's project that he inherited from John Howard Yoder. Uh, and it, like I said, it characterizes a lot of the work that I do theologically. Cones is a little bit different. It makes it interesting because uh, for him, uh, it is not the violence of Constantine that is the prime uh, problem. And, and we'll talk, I'm sure, as we roll along why that's not his main focus. Uh, But instead, it is the very questions that concern Constantine. And with Constantine, he kind of lumps in, uh, you know, all of Christian theology uh, from Nicaea forward. So questions of the nature of Christ, the nature of the will of Christ, the nature of the mind of Christ, the nature of the nature of Christ, right? Um, All of these things, Cone says, uh, are distractions from, and, and he goes even further than that, he says, because they are not focused on the liberation of the oppressed, uh, they are positively anti-Christian teachings because they do take oxygen away from that. Um, so, you know, the, the Constantine story is a, is a different one. Now, he goes further than that uh, when he, you know, digs into the history of Christian ethics. He makes a, a strange claim uh, that when we look at, you know, the, the writings of Augustine or Aquinas or Martin Luther, that we can't simply say that these were not their concerns because of their historical moment, because the Bible is very clear on it and they had the Bible. So, I mean, I think this is another place where James Cone here is out Luthering Luther, 
uh, everyone who came before me and sees different things in the Bible. Uh, it's not because of historical difference. Uh, it's because they are in, in active rebellion against the clear counsel of Scripture. Uh, so, I mean, it's a very weird and a very, I'd, I'd say, a very Protestant uh, notion of church history here, that uh, what came before uh, is not simply different, but it, it is negatively deficient uh, as far as ethics go. Uh, Michael, what else about this Constantine story or about this notion of church history and Christian ethics is, is worth noting here? I, I think you're right to tie it back into Luther, as we were saying two episodes ago, that, that he really is doing a very similar project, albeit with different results. Though even Luther's not going to say, and this is why I'm going to ditch all the ecumenical councils, because they weren't about justification by faith. Right? I don't know. I mean, you know, in the bondage of the will, I mean, he seems to say that, you know, every church father who doesn't teach justification by faith alone might as well be thrown into the fire, doesn't he? Yeah, but I think he he has a pretty a pretty confident notion that 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 if that if we dig into the fathers that we'll find the gospel that he preaches. Um and he keeps the creeds. Uh heck, he even keeps church art. Yeah, true enough. And, and and I'll grant David that, I mean, Cohn is definitely more radical on this point than Luther. But like I said, the structure, I mean, the, the parallels are hard to deny for me. I mean, that that, that, that that's a fair point. Lest um, we forget, David, the man wanted to throw the book of James out of the New Testament. I know he didn't do it, but <laughs> he wanted to. Specifically because he thought it didn't teach justification by faith. So, I mean... Cone's not recommending we toss out any books of the Bible, at least not that I can see. But he is he is suggesting that that do, times and and doctrines in in church history, and this is even even ecumenical church history, right? Um, were were not just you know incomplete or not sufficiently developed on this one point, but but anti-Christian and heretical, not because of their opposition to a teaching, but because they didn't make that teaching their their single first order front front burner concern, the fact that they were concerned about anything else is is the is is the thing that 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 his judgment falls on, and that's the difference with Luther. Luther's not going to throw out everybody else because they don't always only talk about justification by faith you have to remind me who uh, luther thought the antichrist was the pope <laughs> the pope the westminster confession says the pope is the antichrist well yeah i mean because he denies justification by faith but he doesn't say the Pope is the Antichrist because he teaches that Jesus Christ is God, and that's a different sentence from justification by faith. Like, it, it, it's the, yeah. Yeah. Well, what amuses me here, David, is I'm trying to grant your point, and Michael's the one throwing punches at this point. Right, right. I'm 
I mean, I, I'm with Nathan. He he does obviously go beyond Luther, but it's a very Lutheran move. And and I think I think it it seems more radical to us because we have already accepted Luther. Do you know what I mean? That I mean that's true, but uh, I don't know. I I've been I've been trying to read. I, I've been reading more lately about um, the engagement that some of the early reformers, including Luther and Melanchthon, um, had with the fathers and and attempts that they really. Uh, did try to to put what they were doing in conversation with not just the scripture but also with um, the best that was said and taught in previous generations of Christianity and a very recent uh, well it was not the article was written last year but I, I just recently discovered it but uh, an encounter that Martin Luther had with a deacon from the Ethiopian Orthodox Church um, in which he felt his that his positions on the Eucharist were confirmed by his conversations with this this Ethiopian deacon, and he saw this deacon as representing um, a wing of the church that had not been corrupted by um, the late the the what he saw as the late medieval drift of the Roman papacy. He should have and, asked the Ethiopian to baptize him then and there. There is plenty of water. So, well, so I'll say this, David. I think that Cohn's practice is probably more moderate than his statements because I see him doing that throughout this book, engaging with church history and, and previous theologians whom he clearly admires even as he critiques them. That's a, that's a really fair point. So I, 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 I agree the, the statement is, is more extreme, but in practice, I don't see him doing anything all that bad. Right. Although the statements themselves, I mean, you know, I, I jotted down one, you know, because Constantine was not oppressed, he brought us not the God of Moses and Amos, but the God of Plotinus. And I'm thinking that that's just objectively not true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, to, to also leave out the, uh, the degree to which the, uh, the persecution of the church under Diocletian was still a recent within the limbering memory of those bishops who were participating event um, to say they weren't concerned about oppression and suffering because they were in this kind of cushy position. Um, Nicaea is still really fresh. Like, like they're not entirely used to the notion that they can come out in broad daylight and identify themselves to soldiers. Um, you know, you know, there, there, are, there are bishops at Nicaea who have relatively fresh scars. Um, you know, the, f the fact that Nicaea was not about uh, the emancipation or the ending of the, the institution of Roman slavery um, doesn't necessarily mean that, the, that those who were speaking at Nicaea did not themselves kn know what it meant to suffer and be hunted. And that includes Athanasius, who spends most of his ministry, you know, on the backside of the desert because he keeps getting evicted by, you know, Aryan emperors. And who, I can't say this enough, was Ethiopian. Athanasius was black. Yep. But I know, I mean, obviously blackness is about more than skin color. I'm not, I'm not terribly naive, but 
I do think, I mean, yeah. in, in somewhere in the first few chapters, he, he includes Athanasius in this list of white church fathers. That, that, that I think, uh, that I, I, I think, or at least I hope is something that, uh, after Cone, um, a, a more, an, an attempt to retrieve, um, the, the real contribution of the Christian, the Christianities of the African continent to global Christianity. I, 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 I think that's something that's been developed more since when Cone was writing this book. I would hope that if he were, that if he'd had a chance to write it, you know, 20 years, 30 years later, um, that his handling of someone like Athanasius would have been, uh, more, more respectful. Well, and I, I do think it highlights the degree to which this is a book about African-American theology, a book of African-American theology and not just black theology full stop. I mean, but obviously it would have stuff to say in South Africa and other places in Africa where there's a kind of colonial oppression. So maybe I'm wrong. Well, Next, Cone lays out the principles for a new black ethic of liberation. That's that's his phrase. Uh, his starting point uh, didn't surprise me based on the principles he developed in the book so far, and this is his quote. I contend that the koinonia, that is the, the congregation, uh, the church, uh, is limited to the victims of oppression and does not include the oppressors. That seems to follow logically from all he's said so far. But he develops that in some ways that really made my jaw drop as I was reading it. So, Michael, how does his argument work when you're reading it with the grain? Um, and what are the parts that probably made me choke? And is there something I can do with them instead of just choke? Okay, so here I think you really see the limitations of Cohn's single-minded focus on political liberation. Because if you've accepted that oppression is the issue, it's the center of everything, the question of what means can I use in order to end that oppression becomes much less relevant than it would if political liberation is one of two or three or four things at the center of the Christian faith. Because then you would have something to check it. So what ends up happening, if I'm reading him correctly, is that he says the, oppress the oppressed uh, are basically have carte blanche to use any means necessary in order to to achieve their liberation. Uh, and, and that includes violence, as we'll talk about in a few minutes. He, he says, this is not really reading him with the grain. It's, it's reading him against the grain. But he says, it sounds like to me that, that ethical quandaries or, are for the people who are oppressing rather than the people who are being oppressed. And that if, if you're on the underside of that equation, Anything goes? Is that a misreading? Well, he has that anecdote about um, about a woman who is who is a slave, um, but also a uh, a devout churchgoer, um, being accused of theft by uh, by her owner, by her by her master. Um, and how does that play out? I do not remember, so you'll just have to tell me. Well, the way uh, 
the way she says it is that it's not theft if it's it's theft if a slave steals from another slave it's not theft if they take from a master it's simply then it's simply claiming uh, what is what is rightfully rightfully theirs as a, get, get, getting what is theirs back from the oppressor who takes from them what they what, what they shouldn't I have to say in that situation that does not seem like a completely unreasonable argument to me I, I think a lot of people would make an exception to the law against theft if somebody was starving or I mean it, it is true that when you're in certain circumstances most of us forgive theft Right. And, I, and it, 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 yes. With slavery in particular, it's interesting too, because how can a piece of property steal another piece of property? Right, right. To to accuse a slave of stealing is to grant them the dignity of real moral agency. Yeah, but I'm not sure it works in the same way with other forms of oppression. Um, with with let's say less less blatant forms of oppression. So I, th I think there's probably a sense in which it's true that by living middle class lifestyles uh, in America, we are oppressing people in foreign countries, the, the, the people who serve as cheap labor for making your clothes, for example. I don't know how this would work. Would they be justified in breaking into your house and stealing something? It's not really the same thing, though, is it? I'm just trying well, to work it out. Yeah. I mean, the, I, 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 I tried to. You know, this this is this is my way of reading it against the grain. If you think of slavery uh, as a a forcible abduction followed by uh, unjust imprisonment and forced labor, and probably which, rape in the case of that woman, which which morally it is um if you think of it as as something like that then then the ethic uh then what determines the morality of a slave's action uh, uh the slave's uh actions is less like theft between neighbor and neighbor and more like the sort of thing that goes off and that uh, that goes on in that great movie uh, the great escape where you know American you know prisoners of war are trying to escape from a Nazi prison camp, right, right, yeah. Um, like if if that's if that's the moral fact, then that does change things. The but problem it, is the specter of Malcolm X is hanging over all of this stuff, and I I think I think it's difficult to read this book, which is what 1977 without invoking the Black Panthers as we did yeah. at the beginning. And I mean, we're not talking about a slave stealing from his master. We're talking about um, extra government militia groups harming people. I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know of a way to soften that. Well, and we're also talking about people that, yes, are um, in in a society that is it, it 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 they are left-handed people in a right-handed society they are they are they are they are folks who every every system has been rigged against their success but they are at least on paper citizens with 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 rights 
um, they aren't owned. They are disadvantaged, but they aren't owned. Does that change the, the prison camp metaphor? And does that change the ethic on the ground? Um, Cone's, Cone's argument about ethics of oppression is so anchored in the slave owner context um, that he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't pull back from that and say that that context might not might not be the the place might not be the the the, the most productive way to think about what's happening now in the context we're in now. My other my other concern is when you decide what's right and wrong based on whether a person is oppressed or oppressor. The truth is, almost everybody in every society is both. And there are degrees to that. Right. I'm not doing some sort of moral equivalence between the slave master and the slave. But the truth is, there's only one person on the bottom. <laughs> so yeah. how, how far do you take it? Are black women allowed to commit acts of violence and the like against black men? Because, I mean, as we discussed in the Aretha Franklin episode, the... Uh, Black women are oppressed by black men in particular ways, probably oppressed by white men more, I recognize. But I, I just I just worry when you have a when you have an ethics that is this defined by social position, it's not even abuse. Do you, do you know what I mean? I'm not even worried about somebody abusing the system. I'm worried about the way the system actually works. Yeah. Well, and this is where I think, you know, some influence from Rene Girard could be a helpful addition to this. Because, you know, one thing about uh, social position is that it definitely has objective economic realities. It definitely has objective political realities. It also has very constructed rhetorical characteristics. Uh, and, you know, Girard's notion of mimetic desire I think speaks to this, right? I mean, you know, his his idea is that, you know, once people figure out that, you know, the victim is in the morally superior position, the power of human language is that we can frame ourselves as the victim very, very easily, right? And so, I mean, you know, Cone's move, especially in the last third of this book, to say that, you know, okay, these appeals to, you know, a common rationality are just more uh, tricks of the oppressor, and, you know, we, we don't have any obligation to justify ourselves according to the oppressor's reason. I mean, to my mind, and again, there's really no way he could have anticipated this in 1975, but that sounds like chapter one of the Trump campaign playbook. You know, we don't have to abide by the rationality of the elites because the elites are just putting us down anyway. Whatever works, that's what we're going to do. Yes. <laughs> Let me let me do let me speak just briefly in partial favor of what he's saying, because I, I do think most people emotionally, if not rationally, would see a huge difference between an abusive husband killing his wife and an abused wife killing her husband. And, and, and in, right. in, in that sense, the oppression really does make a difference in the ethics of the thing. There, there's a certain percentage of people in our society, and to be honest with you, I'm not even sure that I'm not one of them who would say the woman is completely justified in killing her husband uh, and shouldn't be punished for it. Um, but I think almost everybody would say that that, mur that murder has more ethical status than his murder of her because, because of the way he has been treating her. 
So in that, I think that that Cone has a point. I just worry about how this actually plays out in reality when everybody in your society has adopted this and it's it's a kind of race to the bottom for who's the most oppressed the oppression olympics as they call it well the other thing is that it suppresses other other ethical factors so you have what's let's say you have the abuse abusive husband and the abused wife and she murders him but she is also having an affair and she and her lover conspire to kill her husband by stealth and then maybe when he's in the uh, bathtub after returning yeah. from troy yeah right <laughs> i was thinking the same okay thing, okay Michael. all right and then arrange or and then maybe arrange to have it look like an accident so that they can um they can cash in on the insurance money uh is it does it still have the same is it still in the same ethical place as, well, as as you know your 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 favorite play ever trifles? Right, and I mean part of the problem here is the problem with ethical systems in general, which is if they're rigid, they're unjust, right? Because because actions that ought to be allowed are not allowed. The the, the you know there's just like you think Kant's ethics and. You can never lie for any reason, or you can't. I mean, he really says you can't steal bread if you're starving. I, I would call that an unjust ethical system because it's inhuman. On the other hand, if you have a system that is situational, there's always going to be someone who takes advantage of the situation. And what do you do there? So I, I think maybe in some way we're bumping up against the same problems that any ethical formulation bumps up against, but most of them don't scare me this much. And maybe it's just because I'm an oppressor. I, I mean, I, I, I'm willing to accept that this, this argument is so distasteful to me because it doesn't work in my favor. But as, as Nathan points out, the, the Trump voter can adopt this pretty quickly. And well, did. Yep. Well, and the, the thing that, scares me about it maybe maybe this is just another way of saying what what you've said michael is that the only the only thing that defines the the ethics of your action is whether you're direction whether you're directing it below you or whether you're directing it above you yeah and i've always hated that punch down punch up language because who knows we're all such complicated collections of identities and social positions. How do I know ultimately if somebody's above or below me? Sometimes it's obvious. If I'm a slave master and somebody else is a slave, sure. But so, for example, am I above or below a black woman who teaches at Harvard? I, <laughs> I don't know. There's a sense in which I'm above her because I'm white. And I have a certain status because I'm male. But on the other hand, she's working at Harvard. She has way more social capital than I do, way more money, way more social respect. So I, 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 I agree that the, the dichotomy between oppressor and oppressed is sometimes really clear and sometimes much more complicated than I think Cohn wants to make it here. Hmm. Well, maybe these are things that we can return to. I mean, what's on. what's great about this is how upset I am. So I mean, he's 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 at least <laughs> made me think about it. I never would have even considered this idea, um, but uh, ultimately I have to uh, I have to part ways with him. I'm afraid.
Well, I think uh, you're probably gearing up for something similar, Nathan, uh, when he talks about the ethics of violence. Um, the, the, the title that he uses is Ethics, Violence, and Jesus Christ. Um, and, and he takes issue with Martin Luther King Jr.'s stance on nonviolence as a, uh, an inviolable principle for civil rights activism. Um, so can you unpack Cohn's take on violence and nonviolence, a theology of violence and nonviolence, and the way that he engages King's position and uh, other, other theologies of violence that you could put in conversation with it? Certainly. I mean, you know, in a weird way, you know, he almost anticipates that terrible Reza Aslan book, Zealot here, right? Uh, you know, Jesus. I was thinking that too. You know, yeah. Jesus, uh, the nonviolence of Jesus that, you know, so many people emphasize, ah, that wasn't all that important, right? Now, philosophically, I mean, Cohn's starting point for this ethical discussion is, uh, quote, no one can be nonviolent in an unjust society, close quote. So this is the ethics of complicity, uh, so that if you are unwilling to uh, use deadly force, because uh, I'm not going to use the, the word violence here for reasons I'll explain here for a moment, if you are unwilling to use deadly force in the pursuit of justice, then you are objectively allowing the deadly force that the unjust use to stand unopposed. Uh, so this is a sort of uh, balance of powers ethic. Uh, if you are the only side that refuses to fight for your side, uh, then you are objectively doing violence in behalf of the other. And violence in this uh, conception of things is only what the oppressor does. Uh, if the, you know, if the oppressed do it, you know, it is fighting back to be sure, uh, and it might be deadly force. Uh, but ultimately, because it is oppression that violates the world as we know it, both the human world and the spiritual world, uh, that's the only thing that really counts as violence. So, you know, for him, King is, is not enough of a pragmatist. Uh, we talked about that, you know, when Michael had the helm last episode, that, you know, Cohn is part of this, this intellectual tradition that says that Christian ethics has to start with the world that we actually inhabit, and our response to it has to be on terms that can actually make things happen within that system. Now, the reason that, you know, someone like me is going to be uneasy about this is because, again, my own theological commitment uh, is to a an ethics of witness rather than of influence. Uh, my goal as a Christian is to bear witness to a kingdom that is coming. The role that we play in the world, which is not identical in my ethics with the role of the magistrate, as you know, my translation of Romans 13 calls it, uh, the, the magistrate's role is to wield the sword and to uh, restrain evil. The role of the Christian is to bear witness to a kingdom that is coming in which there will be no evil to restrain. And so, you know, this is where, you know, as Michael just said, you know, so eloquently, I have to part ways uh, with Cone's approach because where he sees a tension between black ethics and white American ethics, I grant that tension between black ethics and American white ethics, but I would put a third party in there, namely the ethics to which Christ calls us, which is an ethics of witness rather than of coercion or influence or 
uh, making stuff happen. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, he is right that, you know, part of God's activity in the world uh, is to restrain evil through civil authorities. And I think that the Christian responsibility in that kind of a world is to bear witness truthfully to the ultimate desires of God, uh, to the judgment of God, to the justice of God, all of these things. Where Cohn would take one step further would be to say that God is using specifically the oppressed, which is to say God's people, to do those things, and therefore it is good for those people who call themselves God's people to take up those weapons. That's where, like I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna part ways with him, and you know where ultimately I think uh, Dr. King parted ways with him. Um, Michael, am I, am I missing any of the big points here? No, I don't think so at all. I like I liked that framework a lot. It just it just makes me makes me think how on board with this book I would be if that chapter didn't exist. Because because he seems to be leading up to something like uh like christian nonviolence, and then that chapter just kind of comes out of nowhere by any means necessary you really you really feel that black power movement emphasis well and in the in the second edition he actually quotes malcolm x at some length does he not do that in the first edition uh what edition have i got um, I, I know you guys have been on yeah. different page numbers than I have for most of this conversation. My the, I have, 1975. I have one, one note for him on page 198. Yeah. I, what you I, and I, I need to do is forget our differences. When we come together, we don't come together as Baptist or Methodist. You don't catch hell because you're a Baptist, and you don't catch hell because you're a Methodist or Baptist. You don't catch hell because you're a Democrat or Republican. You don't catch hell because you're a Mason or an Elk. And you sure don't catch hell because you're an American. Because if you were an American, you wouldn't catch hell. You catch hell because you're a black man. You catch hell. All of us catch hell for the same reason. And commenting on that, you know, Cone That's in mine. basically says that, you know, the particularities of Christian confession, I mean, have to give way to that, you know, solidarity and that alliance between black people well because there is no christian out identity outside of the identification with the oppressed right right which again totally on board with which but that doesn't that become difficult when it's the oppression olympics yeah uh, yeah i mean what what ends up happening is you end up you end up, everybody ends up thinking of themselves as oppressed. Or in the race to kind of figure out which, uh, who, who, who's, who's most. And, and, and yeah. It, uh, yeah. Well, and again, I, I know I keep coming back to this and I mean, it might not be entirely fair, but you know, if you're going to do theology in your own moment, we are reading this book in 2018 and we've just seen three years of people claiming, you know, okay, our old concerns with character back in 1998 don't matter anymore because we need someone who talks big, who hits hard, who can protect us because ultimately, you know, all of that morality stuff doesn't matter if we're being steamrolled. 
And I guess and, what Cone yeah, would go, yeah. what Cone would say to that is, well, those people aren't actually oppressed, and they're just they're they're just kind of coming up with this oppression for themselves. And once you use the language of actually oppressed, you are doing a common reasoning, and you have to appeal to a common reason, don't you? Yes. And that uh, maybe maybe that's the danger of of this approach is that it not only rejects the notion of 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 finding a common reason, but it not only it, it but it finds it not just undesirable, but even antithetical to what should be the real proper goals of an ethic and of a theology. And yes, listeners, you did just hear me make a Kantian case against something we read together. That's okay. <laughs> I called Kant inhuman earlier, so. Um, do you get the sense that Cohn has any room in this chapter for a magistrate with the power of compulsion for the 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 upholding of the good in in the way that you were that you were speaking of it nathan ah i'm not seeing a whole lot of that but that said i mean i i really didn't prep for that question so michael do you have any memories of that no and and you got to wonder if if you're if your whole theology is split down between oppressor and oppressed where would you even put a just magistrate yeah i mean he's he seems to he's he seems to indicate that as as long as long as the system whichever system you inhabit um has any oppressed in it the forces that uphold that system are uh, simply simply by definition forces of oppression and couldn't possibly be that that magistrate that holds that holds the sword um, in a god in in a god sanctioned way even if they are not themselves the godly ones. I wonder if he thinks that the leaders of the black church are just magistrates in some way. Do you know what I mean? Say more. Possibly. Well, I, I mean, if if what we're talking about here is hierarchy is oppression, there's a hierarchy in black churches, right? I mean, I don't know what it is, but I assume the pastor has more power than the other members of the congregation. Is is w Would we have to argue that the pastor is in some sense oppressing the members of his congregation just by exercising power over them? Is it power of compulsion? Is it the same? I, I, I mean... They don't have the power of the sword. Yeah, I guess that's true. But, I mean, even without the power of the sword, we can all recognize that sometimes pastors are oppressive, right? They, they, use, they, they use psychological oppression and, uh, and things like that. I, 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 just wonder, I just wonder if Cohn is calling for a complete abolition of all hierarchy. He, I, I don't remember him saying that explicitly, so I, I may be putting words in. I may be trying to make him so extreme that I can dismiss him. Wait, for so uh, for him to so emphasize the the importance and the power and the influence of the pastor in the black church, and for him to to be using black homily and uh, the, the the words of black preachers as sources of theology and looking to them as examples of of leadership and, and those who ought to be um, uh, 
leading the conversation and so forth. Um, I, I don't know that he that he that he wants to completely undermine any positions of um, maybe not call it power, but call it um, call it responsibility and leadership. Yeah, does, that's probably fair. And and it's also hard to blame a black man in the 1970s for not being able to picture a just national magistrate. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, hell, it's hard to imagine. It, I mean, it's 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 hard to blame a black person in 2018 for not being able to imagine that. And how much more in 70 and how much more in 50 and how much more in 1850 right so yeah i I think i wasn't being fair well but the 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 limitations though of of your historical context on your ability to imagine a better system though i mean that that's that's an explanation but it doesn't mean that it's impossible no yeah it it doesn't and that the book is limited doesn't make it wrong exactly but I, I I would be interested in seeing somebody take this argument and telling me what it has to do with hierarchy and power altogether. And, you know, for all I know, that's been done a hundred times. I'm not, I don't really read a lot of theology. Well, speaking of, we've, we've been talking about violence. Let's talk about being friends. Um, in his final chapter, Liberation and Reconciliation, uh, Cohn sets out, the terms under which true reconciliation between black and whites can take place. Um, so how does Cone define reconciliation, Michael, and what are its conditions and what are the dangers of declaring it accomplished too soon? We are running out of time, so I'm going to do this very quickly. Reconciliation doesn't get to happen until privilege is destroyed. So If reconciliation is about everybody coming back together, that can't happen until both the valleys are raised and the mountains are raised with a Z. So when we're talking about coming together, we're not talking about like bending over and shaking hands. We're talking about something close to apocalyptic, I would say. There is no reconciliation until justice has been served. And moreover, only the oppressed can set the terms under which reconciliation can happen. Which that seems uh, utterly fair, doesn't it? <laughs> absolutely. No, I'm I'm a hundred percent behind that. Good news, everybody, we've reconciled. <laughs> yep. Well, and and not just um, the 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 oppressed set the terms, but all of the oppressed together, simultaneously, apparently. Um. Yeah. No, I mean, one of the things that he does say is that, you know, premature talk of reconciliation really does yield more oppression. I mean, that yeah. is an insight. I mean, you know, as Michael was saying earlier, I mean, if I if Cone lost me in chapter nine, I was right back with him in chapter 10 because he shows a, a really strong grasp on, you know, the rhetorical power of reconciliation talk. I mean, it is so appealing uh, just on its face that it can conceal a whole lot of injustice uh, even as it seeks for good things yeah i i see his point and i i i i, I it was good to it was good to read that section and feel the frustration that he had um uh, uh in 
in those who would say, oh, well, you know, we passed a civil rights law. Yay, all is good now. We elected a black president. Racism solved. Right. Like we to to hear his frustration was 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 really, really healthy. But um, is it possible that he he sets such a an exclusive priority on the on the systemic and the societal that he doesn't grant the real goods of the personal and the local at the level of of you know individual and individual or at the level of congregation um it that that was the thing that concerned me about his his tone in this section it seems as if well none of us are going to be friends with any of y'all until everything's fixed and you're you're at arm's length until after the revolution it's interesting i i i took this in a different direction and oddly enough it reminded me of thomas kuhn's book the structure of scientific revolutions uh, because his account of how scientific structures change, uh, it's not that the people most dedicated to Aristotelian physics become convinced of Newtonian physics. Uh, it's that they either retire or die. And when the new generation is taught, the Newtonian model just seems self-evident because it actually objectively does better work. But that, you know, the, the nature of the social structures of human communities is such that, you know, the bad ideas, even if they are, from the perspective of the future, objectively bad ideas, are still our ideas, so we still cling to them. Mm-hmm. So I guess I, I read this as a little bit more optimistic than you did, David. I, I see this as, uh, you know, the people who have been oppressing and who are holding on to the effects of that oppression uh they don't get to decide you know when reconciliation happens uh but the people in that next generation because they are in not an unrelated relationship but in a decidedly different relationship new possibilities emerge as each generation rolls along which, which i might be reading no go i ahead. might be reading that on to cone i'll go ahead and grant that i might be reading that on to cone but it seems like a logical implication of his position here. And one I think you can see working out with the younger generation of evangelicals. I, I think my students are not given to the sort of self-satisfied individualism that leads to, uh, leads to some of the problems with reconciliation. I think they're much more open to what he's talking about than even our generation is, and certainly more than our parents or grandparents. Yeah. I mean, it it felt really really bleak when I read it. Um, I appreciate you giving me you know maybe a different angle on it, Nathan, because I I really feel like there there needs to also be a space for us to say what does it look like to try to live the ethic of the perfect city when the city we live in is not yet perfect. What does it look like to 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 stay on the pilgrimage and die in faith. Um, if if all of our eggs are in in the basket of political change here and now, 
then if I die and it still hasn't happened, um, you know, what, you know, what is, what has been accomplished or, or, or will there ever be any little moments of, of little, little moments, little glimpses, little, little reconciliations, little, little foretastes of the future good. Um, right. I mean, the word the new Testament uses for those moments is semia, right? Signs, wonders. Yeah. Will there ever be signs and wonders? And <laughs> I mean, you know, I would say that, 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 that the little reconciliations, you know, the, the congregations who, who make it work, um, the friendships, uh, the, 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 the respectful, um, parity of colleague and colleague, friend and friend of, of spouses, of siblings, like th those can be the signs and wonders that look to this future age. Um, that we ought to be working for, for realization for in our moment. But uh, I, I just I just felt really really depressed reading reading that chapter. As a guy who seems to not be included in any of the conversations in that chapter until after the eschaton. So we've tried to restrict our conversation with Cone to understanding his arguments so far, but um, not always, uh, not always succeeded in restricting that. Um, but along the way, he's taken taken stances and made some made some moves that um, uh, I, at least, and it seems all too, have found difficult to accept. On the other hand, a lot of folks said of Jesus uh, when Jesus was talking, "This is a hard saying. Who can hear it?" So, very briefly, what are some hard sayings of Cone that we should hear? And maybe what are some places where he should have said it better or he's just just doesn't seem right? Nathan? I'm going to do one of each. The word from Cone that uh, especially white Christians need to hear, uh, and I would say American Christians more broadly, uh, is that when we talk about sins, uh, we do need to talk about being sinners, like David was concerned with earlier this episode. We also need to talk about sin uh, as a structure of oppression. We do need to hear from the prophets. We do need to hear from Moses. Uh, for that matter, I mean, we do need to hear uh, from Jesus. I mean, when he talks about this cosmic, uh, apocalyptic act of God in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, it is something that has uh, a political element to it, a political dimension. Uh, so if we ignore that, uh, you know, in other words, if we take, you know, what Cone has to say that most troubles us, and we say that therefore we're going to ignore that, I think we miss something that Cone is genuinely teaching us about the genuine thrust of the genuine text of the genuine Bible. On the other hand, one of the things that emerged, uh, and I'm going to hark back to chapter 9 because, you know, I, I, I think as with you guys, it's the chapter that I found most troubling. Um, Cone strays into uh, what we now call post-truth. Uh, the reason of the elite isn't really reason. It's just a tool for oppression. Uh, you know, I mean, this is an echo of, among other people, Machiavelli, Thrasymachus from Plato's Republic, 
all sorts of people that we don't necessarily want to emulate. Um, and, you know, just because post-truth was a left-wing thing in the 70s, uh, that doesn't mean that, you know, it's a good thing as we see when the right-wing adopts it in 2016. Uh, you know, the fact of the matter is that if we have some kind of aspiration to something other than the current oppressor-oppressed dyad, then it's going to have to involve something like a common reason. And I think that, you know, although tactically to deny that reason might be to avoid certain traps of the abuse and the manip manipulation that comes with rhetoric, it really throws us more upon the relativism of rhetoric without dialectic. And I think that's the, the moment where, again, I have to uh, part ways with this book. With that said, I think that the final chapter, I mean, really throws it in our face, even if it is bleak. It is a reminder that what we're dealing with is sin that goes all the way down to our souls and all the way down to our systems, all the way down to our history, all the way down to our politics. And for that sin to find forgiveness is going to be something apocalyptic. I mean, there's, I, I think there's something to the fact that our New Testament is, is uh, to such a great extent, an apocalyptic collection of books. I think that that's a reality that Cone's taking seriously. It's going to be bad news for some of us before it's good news, too. Absolutely. And Michael, I just talked way too long, so what do you have to say, man? Well, you already kind of covered it earlier, but my, I, I do think he's imbalanced. I think he is putting at the center something that should be one of three or four things that orbit the center, and because of that, he is given to these extreme statements, and yet I think that's his value because in the theological milieu we move in, people have tended to ignore this part, and so him coming in, uh, both barrels, guns blazing, I think, really, really helped me to understand how important this vision of liberation is, even if I end up thinking that he he calls it a little bit more than it is. Excellent. Um, the the hard saying um e even even though that last chapter on reconciliation is diff is um as i said uh, as i said bleak um there is a section in there in which he talks about the uh the white ally for civil rights who because they have gone to marches and because they've been to black churches and because they have said good things in the right kinds of contexts um declare themselves now the voice of liberation um and 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 and, and speak for it um and he wants in uh, his uh cones cones critique of the of those who would step in um to the fashionable crusade uh and and take in and and make themselves uh try 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 to make it uh their own um their their own uh place to die uh, their own place to fight and die heroically like byron going to die in the greek revolution against turkey um is i think that's a good word because um 
there's always uh, there's always a chance that um, white repentance might slide into a kind of white saviorism, uh, which is uh, also racist. And I, I, I appreciate it. I, I've been recently listening to some talks from the uh, the Gospel Coalition conference uh, in honor of uh, the the 50 year anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. Uh, but there's a a talk given by Trip Lee. He's a, a hip hop artist, and one of the things that he talks about is the danger of the the fashionable the fashionable social cause um, attracting a lot of energy and a lot of attention and a lot of likes and hashtags for a season but then when the next thing comes along that all fades and you know something new is now fashionable and uh, as he said there and I think um, that chapter from the chapter on reconciliation from Cohen would say that that is not real reconciliation that is that is ego boosting and conscience assuaging um, but that the real work is the hard work and the long work well dear listeners uh i hope uh that you have uh appreciated and and heard some heard some things worth hearing uh, in our engagement with james cone and his book god of the oppressed um uh, we certainly are not setting up ourselves as experts on on Cone or the larger uh, larger uh, work in theology that he represented. Um, we are we are learners who are seeking to do the incredibly dangerous thing of learn in public. So, uh, if you would like to give us feedback, you can send it to our email. Uh, Christian, uh, the Christian Humanist at gmail uh, dot com, or post them on our Facebook wall or on the show notes uh, to the blog ChristianHumanist.org. But next week, uh, as we said, or at the beginning of the episode, is going to be our crossover episode. I'll be hosting a conversation with Todd Pedler and uh, Jordan Poss uh, about uh, the Hitchcock film Thirty Nine Steps. Uh, in the meanwhile, I leave you with the words of Martin Luther to let your sin be strong and let your faith be stronger. <laughs>